chronic and disquieting sense of apprehension is felt by each resident of Collinsport. These feelings of trepidation, however, cannot compare to the dread that is felt by those who live high atop Widow's Hill, for they have seen that which must not be seen. They have known the unknown. They have experienced the terror at Collinwood. Careful, my friend, where you tread, for I warn you now, there are spoilers ahead. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle, the mysterious doppelganger of Penny Dreadful, and I am delighted to be joined by my guest today. Oh my goodness, I am so psyched to have him here. It is Stuart Manning. Stuart uh, is a graphic designer and art director, a writer and audio producer who was the mastermind behind the Dark Shadows Journal and the Dark Shadows News page, which continues on via Twitter. And you should absolutely follow the Dark Shadows News on Twitter. Uh, he wrote and produced a number of the Dark Shadows Big Finish audio dramas, including The House of Despair, The Night Whispers with Jonathan Frid, and The Excellent Kingdom of the Dead. He also wrote the Dark Shadows comic book series for Dynamite Entertainment. He recently announced the exciting new print fanzine, Daytime Gothic, which I am very much looking forward to. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Hello. Hi. So, Stuart, uh, wow, you have done uh, so much over the years, both as a fan for Dark Shadows, but also as a professional for Dark Shadows. And I, I want to dive in uh, to some of that. But before we we get into uh, your, uh, your fascination with Dark Shadows and your passion for Dark Shadows, I want to talk about this new print fanzine. I mean, I had uh, Kathleen Resch on here from the World of Dark Shadows a couple episodes back, and we were bemoaning, you know, the end of the print fanzine. We haven't seen a print fanzine for Dark Shadows or honestly most fandoms for quite a long time. And with the way desktop publishing is now, I imagine, you know, you could have such a slick, beautiful uh, fanzine. And all of a sudden I see this post from you about uh, daytime gothic. How cool is this? So please t tell us all about daytime gothic. How how did this come about and why are you doing it? Uh, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, it was, I'd like to say it was, um, you know, a, a big plan and uh, uh, and it's a great vision for it. It was really quite sort of spur of the moment. And um, I was trying to think before we came on here, like when probably the last print fanzine was. I mean, what must it be? At this? It's got to be at least 10 years, I'd assume. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Um, yeah. um, certainly my, my dabblings in fanzines go back over 20 years. Mm -hmm. The last one I did was in 99 and I was still a teenager. <laughs> so uh, that dates me a bit. But yeah, I, I guess... There's two things, really. I it's been a while, and I've been thinking in the summer maybe it would be time and nice to do something dark shadowsy again because it's been a while. And also, a lot, a lot of my professional life is I work in magazines. I've worked on quite a few big magazines here in the UK, and that's been a big part of my life. And it it really can be traced back to making dark shadows fanzines in my bedroom. 
um, and sort of photocopying them and stapling them. So that was, so there's a sort of lineage there. And um, during the pandemic, I, I have a company and we, like a lot of creatives during the pandemic, had to find different things to do. We'd branched out into publishing. I say we, the company's me, me and me alone. But um, having been doing book publishing as a, a sort of sideline for the past year or so and that going quite well, uh, I sort of had a bit of infrastructure, I guess. And the possibilities now, you can print affordably in full colour. We can, you know, <laughs> when I was doing this before and sort of literally sticking bits of printouts together and then using uh, Tipex, what do you call it, whiteout? The, oh, sure, yeah. Kind of to cover the joins <laughs> so they wouldn't show up on the photocopies so and all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> so it, it, it'll be... It'll be a world a world apart from that, and um, and I thought it'd be nice just to do something dark shadowsy. I think we're as a sort of fandom, we've we've entered a more kind of grassroots yeah. um, phase, and which is is kind of an interesting shift, I think. And so, yeah, I had the idea. I thought we'd do it for charity. We'd just go all for it and try and do the weirdest, most entertaining, attractive Dark Shadows um, magazine possible as a sort of glorious one-off. Yeah, hopefully. Oh, oh, it's always, well, we'll see about the glorious, but yeah, that's the <laughs> there's a, so it's this is a this is a one shot. You're it's not you're not planning to do this as a series, or is that uh, like, oh, the door? Open I don't. For that? I, I mean, let's do this and see how it goes. I can't okay. really see it being <laughs> being. I mean. The, the original fanzine back in the day was a bit of a treadmill and that was always kind of stressful. And this isn't, this is kind of nice because it's, um, you know, it has no professional pressure. It's just something done in celebration. And I, I thought it'd be nice. I thought it'd be nice to, as much as I think fandom is now very connected with social media, it's very difficult to do long form thing, even on blogs. You just don't read things in the same way. There is a, a unique experience to uh, a tactile experience, uh, an experience in terms of the pace you read things at that you can really only get with a printed publication. And as someone, as I said, I work in I work in magazines a lot. That's something I have a vested interest in. That experience is something I want to see as many people enjoy as possible in as many means. And Dark Shadows is as good a one as any right now. <laughs> awesome. Um, it's. Uh... As I mentioned earlier, you know, with the availability of desktop publishing now and and how it's advanced over the years, I've seen I had worked on the Masters of the Universe brand for a little while and uh, and I'm a fan of it as well. But there are a couple of magazines, uh, one in Germany and one in Spain, fanzines, and they look like, I mean, something you would buy off a magazine rack uh, at a shop. You know, it really they're slick. They're really nice looking. Oh, absolutely. There's there's no distinction whatsoever now. The um, short run printing is is the quality threshold is exactly the same. You know, every I mean, people have more technology on their phones than I did making <laughs> you know making fanzines back in the day. So really, the only thing you're limited you are literally limited by creative challenges and imaginative challenges. You're no longer fighting technology. You're no longer mm-hmm. fighting economics. I mean, I remember towards the time I, I wound down the original. Fanzine. I was looking to do a color cover just as a sort of something to add some production value. And the costs of it were, so, were extraordinary. So the idea that now I'm sure if you adjust for inflation, it's overall less. You can do a perfect bound magazine with a spine in, with full color throughout on high quality paper mm-hmm. uh, and it's cheaper is 
well, you know, why wouldn't you make use of that? That's great technology. Absolutely. Yeah. And with your experience working in the magazine industry and as a, a graphic designer, I can imagine this is just going to look sensational uh, just based on what I've, all the things I've seen from you. I'm, I'm excited to see how this is going to look layout wise. Um, what, what can we look forward to in terms of content, like artwork, you know, articles, uh, fiction, like what, what is it going to c- consist of? It's a very broad church, really. I, I, sort of started that title sort of popped in my head a little while ago and I thought it was I had a sort of ring to it and I, I suppose the thing I'm with it's trying to do is to really sort of celebrate and illuminate dark shadows as a unique cultural event this idea that uh, that there was an ongoing gothic series in the sort of sunshine of afternoon television mm-hmm. uh, this sort of weird anomalous, program so that's the sort of heart of the thing and and to try and explore that through as many different mediums as possible uh so yeah artwork it's going to have a comic strip uh which i'm quite excited about uh which is going to have a sort of nice uh sort of edward gory style perfect Uh, (laughs) yeah that should be fun we've got some really nice fiction kind of a, a Features, one of the things I've wanted with features is to really look at, to extend people's knowledge and understanding of Dark Shadows in a contextual way, which I think is one of the things that, uh, and this isn't a criticism of other people, I was guilty of it back in the day. I think there's a tendency to look at Dark Shadows as an island unto itself rather than uh, a program within the ecosystem of 1960s television, specifically mm-hmm. that 1960s daytime subset. And then within that, the soap opera subset. And I think the more you look at those connections, the more the show makes sense, the more you'll understand it. So uh, certainly some of the features are going to look at that. Uh, Obviously you are writing a piece about uh, literary influences. um, We'll touch on some of that. Uh, Ansel Farage, I've just read a really good draft, first draft of uh, a piece looking at a lot of 40s and 50s cinema that seems incredibly dark shadowsy in its conception. Um, I don't know quite how we're going to package that yet, but something to the effect <laughs> of the most dark shadowsy film, the most dark shadows films you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are plenty of them. And one of the things I'm going to be writing is an exploration of why dark shadows ended. Could it have lasted into the 70s? I think the answer is yes, it could. And um, mm-hmm. But there are very interesting uh, conceptual um reasons and I think also production problems that aren't immediately apparent that led to it kind of collapsing very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So things like that, uh, in terms of the, there's going to be some humour. The only thing I've carried across from the original fanzine is we used to do the Collinsport Inquirer, which was our version of a supermarket tabloid uh, based on the National Inquirer, which <laughs> was always my was always my favourite bit. I'm not sure anyone else found it funny, but it's my magazine, so it's going in. <laughs> uh, and there'll be some artwork Um I mean, at the moment, it's about three quarters full, I would say, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm still interested in hearing from people. If you you, you, have a, uh, you have a burning essay about Dark Shadows, you want to get off your chest, uh, get in touch. If you're, uh, if you're a fan artist, I'd love to hear from you. Fiction, I think we could do a little bit more fiction. Uh, the stuff we've got so far is really, I'm really pleased with, but, you know, the, the more the merrier. How can people uh, submit to you? Uh, it, well, if you if you email me on Collinwood18 at gmail.com, you can get the writer's um, notes, which just really sort of sets out 
what we're trying to do and how you might fit into it and get some springboards for the kind of ideas we're looking for. I keep saying we, but, you know, I. <laughs> uh, sounds me anyway. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll definitely po- post a link to also to your uh, Twitter, the, the Dark Shadows News Twitter page as well, so that people Thank can you. follow uh, you on there. Because I've gotten a few, I announced this in the last episode of the podcast, which I posted earlier this week, and I've gotten already a few messages from people asking about uh, how they can get the zine and how they can uh, find out more about it. So follow Dark Shadows News on Twitter, uh, on social media. You also, you're also on Facebook. Uh, yes, well. yes, yeah. we're, dark, we're Dark Shadows News on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, I'm Dark Shadows News on Facebook. Yeah. There's uh, Dark Shadows News as the Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's a pinned tweet in there that has mm-hmm. it. And there's a, there is a mailing list you can sign up to. Um, for, for when it's available to order, which will be a little way off yet. I like I like how you mentioned that you want to sort of look at Dark Shadows from a contextual perspective. One other aspect that I often bring up in this show, uh, you know, coming from my own interest as well in, in just Gothic horror in general, Gothic horror cinema, cinema and literature, and just the, the monster craze that happened in the 60s and then in the 70s as well, uh, Dark Shadows... This doesn't come up as often as I think it should sometimes because Dark Shadows was an integral part of that. It was the bridge between this 1960s monster craze and the 70s monster craze. And I think Mark DeWitziak brought this up in one of his uh, MPI interviews as well. Um, They're, you know, not sure about in the UK, but uh, in terms of like, I know uh, in the US they had like the shock theater package where they were showing the old universal horror films. And in the 60s, kids went crazy for monsters that for films that came out way before they were born. And then of course in the UK, then the hammer films started coming out in the fifties as well in the late fifties with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. And that fed into it as well. And dark shadows was sort of at the epicenter of that as we went from the sixties into the seventies. So dark shadows was also in addition to being like this really important, you know, touchstone of sixties television and pop culture, also just monster culture in general, dark shadows is an important piece of that too. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that this is, in the 1960s, we're still very early into the the history of filmed media. Mm-hmm. We're only sort of 30 years in from talkies. Uh, we're, you know, barely 15, 20 years into, it's probably less than 20 years for uh concerted efforts to, you know, television as in the modern form that we understand it. And what is interesting is it's really the monster craze is one of the first examples of um, the kind of redux of people rediscovering things. So you've got, you know, Universal have a, a spooky show and they plug their horror IP into it and they make it the monsters and it's built around merchandising. It was a show completely conceived for merchandising potential. You've then got... Dark Shadows, which, and I, one of the, again, I've been thinking about this stuff a lot recently in terms of how the visuals for this magazine are going to look. And, and I put up a visual at the weekend, uh, the weekend before last, uh, which is a sort of really hokey shot of Victoria being menaced by various monsters. From oh, I, lo- I love that. Yeah, with Adam shot. kind of looming over. Yeah. Adam's loom. It's very cheesy. It's very melodramatic, <laughs> but it's, I, I it's, I think that's the kind of dark shadows that's really hardwired into the minds of the general audience, even though the year after, which is the 1897 year, is 
you know, on a basic level, has more viewers. Uh, the the visuals of that '68 year, it, it is kids playing with Aurora kits in their yeah. backyard. It is the Wolfman fights Dracula, and then Frankenstein comes along, and then there's a witch. It's mm. it is that sort of everything in the kitchen sink slugging it out, mm-hmm. uh, but played through these sort of very adult uh, neuroses, which are obviously the bedrock of any soap opera. I mean, I think Dark Shadows, in terms of being a soap opera, it also falls into, I don't know if, I, I, I don't know if this was inadvertent or if Dan Curtis had some awareness of it, but uh, that Dark Shadows also fell into the tradition of uh, serialized storytelling with regard to to the Gothic in in the 19th century. I mean, as the Gothic became very popular in the 19th century, a lot of magazine publishers wanted more of it and printed these stories in serialized form and would often end them with cliffhangers and 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 major cliffhangers so that you'd come back for the next installment. And Dark Shadows ended up falling very much into that serialized Gothic tradition. I think uh, I, well. The, I'd say the answer to that is if you look at really all media mm-hmm. other than films, you know, you can take in comic books, you can take in TV shows, yeah, uh, even, as you say, chapters in a book, really the soap opera form is the basic format for long storm, uh, long-form storytelling. Totally. Every single TV show now is a soap, effectively. Yes, you know, exactly. The idea of episodes of a TV show, no one does it. Yep. Uh, and... Because creators about 20 years ago suddenly realized we can tell much longer stories, we can tell better stories, we can Complex. we don't have to present everything and put it away forever uh, within 40 minutes. And of course, the minute you do that, it opens you up to this breadth and this world of storytelling. So yeah. the bit that is, I suppose, interesting for me, that for me, Dark Shadows being a soap, I think is is really essential to its success. And I think mm-hmm. it, one of the things that's unfortunate is pretty much every time it's been revived, that's the bit that kind of gets tossed away. Uh, because I think if you really drill down into the creative, by which I mean the the IP to use a sort of get into legalese, you're dealing with lots of bits of other people's ideas. There isn't really a great deal, which I think you can say has no precedent or has you know, specific originality. But what was genius, I think, was to place these in a long-form serial format, tell these stories in tandem. I mean, even though I don't think it's not my favourite story, having the Adam story and be doing Frankenstein at the same time, you're doing a a story about a cursed dream and there's a story about premature burial happening over here and there's Mm -hmm. a vampire over there and over blooming on the horizon, there's a werewolf. Yeah. And... None of these stories are particularly original in an old, you know, even in 1968, the average viewer would have known these stories. They understood the kind of tropes of them. They understood the shape of them. They were familiar. Mm-hmm. Even prop, you know, the fact that kids could play with toys of Dracula, they were familiar to the point of being cosy. It was something you'd let your kids play with. Mm-hmm. So the idea that reinvigorating them in this almost accidental way if dan could have been making uh, a high budget uh, hour-long anthology series in the evening i'm sure he'd have vastly preferred to be making that he wasn't he was a guy who could only get a soap commissioned yeah. so he made it as a soap 
Yeah, that was what was on the the table. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And it it allowed for more uh, complexity in terms of the character uh, creation of characters and character development, storyline development. uh, Absolutely, for sure. But in many ways, it also and I think this speaks to sort of the 60s context that it, it sort of also while it embodied many of the gothic characteristics, it also subverted them because now you have the monsters, the other as the sort of the protagonists of the show. Barnabas becomes the, the protagonist, the main character of the, of the show. Um, whereas, you know, something like Drac- Dracula is, you know, he is the other who must be destroyed. Barnabas then instead becomes the protagonist. Of, and Barnabas is always shade. I'm, I'm never going to say Barnabas goes from being a good guy to being a bad guy. Barnabas was, had always had shades of gray struggling against this darkness uh, in him, but there were always shades of great with Barnabas, but he becomes the main character of the show, which is. For sure. You know. For sure. I, I, the thing about Barnabas that I find interesting, I, I, you often hear this term bandied around that he's a reluctant vampire, which I'm not really sure he is. I think he's mm-hmm. a, I think he's a neurotic vampire. I like that. Uh, yeah, I, there's an awful lot of times where Barnabas really likes being Barnabas and all the sort of supernatural um, indignities that go with that if if things are going his way and it's convenient yeah. to be able to turn into a bat or strangle your enemies horribly or turn a gun on them. And at which point, you know, Barnabas seems uh, perfectly happy with his lot. I, I mean, I find, I, I find he's a very New York 1960s phenomenon. I think if Woody Allen had made a vampire film in 1969, it would have been the vampire you know, lying on the psychiatrist's couch, (laughs) you know, in repose, talking about how he can't get the girl and maybe he doesn't want this girl after all. Maybe she's not reincarnated. Who knows? (laughs) That strikes me as very New York, that sort of psycho, called psychoanalysis, uh, which, again, I think makes him, I think makes him very, uh, it sort of makes him kind of endearing because he is, he, he is sort of absurd. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, daytime gothic is uh, the proceeds are going to charity. Do you know which charity yet? Uh, yes, it's going to be a UK charity called Macmillan that provides uh, cancer care. I lost uh, my mother to cancer last year. And, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, it'll be a it'll be a year in April. So it's kind of. I don't want to labour that, but that's that's one of my motivations for wanting to do this, uh, and also. Uh, Craig Hamrick, who was yes. um, uh, a really dear friend and a very kind mentor to me, um, who I miss, still miss a great deal many years later. Uh, he died of cancer as well. So that's 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 why that's being done that way. Yeah. For for those who may not know uh, Craig Hamrick, he was a, a huge uh, you know, contributor to the Dark Shadows fandom and, and just information about Dark Shadows. And there's a, a great book uh, called Barnabas and Company, which details each of the actors' careers. Uh, basically, he goes through each actor alphabetically. And, and you really definitely need to pick that book up if you're a Dark Shadows fan. You can uh, you can get it uh, on Amazon or you might be able to still be fi- able to find it in, in some bookstores you bookstores and stuff, but it's an excellent book. And you did a book on Dark Shadows collectibles too, which was really, really fun. I really liked that book a lot too. Um, good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stuart, let's talk about 
Let's go back in time. So you mentioned you were a teenager in 1999, which which makes me feel old. I always think, oh, well, I'm one of the younger Dark Shadow Sins, but not really, uh, not anymore. Um, I, I I too am a second generation fan. But how how did you discover Dark Shadows? Uh, was it through the sci-fi airings in the UK? Or? Uh, well, it, I actually think the the process of find of not being able to find Dark Shadows actually led to me being a fan of it, which sounds kind of weird. I mean, I, there's no way of saying it without sounding 100 years old, but there was no internet back then. Mm-hmm. And I first encountered Dark Shadows as a little picture in a magazine. It was that picture of them, they cast on the staircase. Oh, yeah. Uh, the famous one from 68. And just the title. And it just, and I, I'd always like spooky things. I'd always like soap operas. And so that just seemed like it was a show. That show's made for me. I should watch that. And I'd have been about probably 13 at the time. And there was no way of finding out what it was. No one had heard of it. I mean, not that many people in the, the UK have heard of Dark Shadows now. But go back to the early 90s, it was just, it was beyond obscure. So it was almost like a, it was almost like a, it was vaguely mythological in itself. And I kind of knew that, or I'd kind of convinced myself I could be, I would be a fan of the show and I would love it if only I could find it, which is kind of absurd, but that is, you know, and the idea that I, it took me two years and I sort of faithfully looked for it for two years. It's, I mean, you know, nowadays if I, if, I, if I hear about something and I get my phone out and I can't find out what it is in five seconds and see a video clip, I'd be you just give up. You just think it wouldn't be worth the time. But yeah, nonetheless, I decided that I was going to be a fan of this thing, whether it liked it or not. And um, and so it took about two years. And I first, I think I saw one of the paperback library novels, uh, uh, A Comic Mart, which would have been probably about 90, early 94, uh, which was The Secret of Barnabas Collins. And I sort of read that and didn't know quite what to make of it, but it was Dark Shadows and it had a picture on the front. And then House of Dark Shadows was shown very late one night on Turner Classic Movies on early cable. And we used to get this sort of catalogue for the cable stations for the month ahead. And I would, I had about half a dozen of these kind of culty, obscure things that I convinced myself I had to see and was never going to. And so I would scour going down hundreds of pages of these very densely um, typed columns looking for, and then there it was, House of Dark Shadows. And so I watched that and I didn't, again, I didn't know quite what to make of it, but I, I kind of got the gist and I sort of knew who some of the characters were. And then towards the end of that year, it finally came on, Sci-Fi Channel came to the UK and that would have been, actually, let me back up note. Uh, I would have seen Night of Dark Shadows in the meantime, the BBC showed that very okay. late night, about six months later. So I'd seen the two movies and so I knew sort of put faces to names and I had a sort of vague sense of what they sounded like, what they looked like and what the performances were. And then in 1995, towards the end of that year, Sci-Fi Channel came to the UK and they started the same week. Actually, it was three things happened within about two weeks. The Sci-Fi Channel started, they started with episode one of the 66 original show they start they were showing the 1991 show at the weekends so you could watch one of those a week you could watch two episodes of dark shadows every weekday so there was 10 of those one episode of the 91 show and then about two three weeks into that channel four which is one of the major channels here did an evening of uh, a soap weekend they mainly showed classic episodes of sort of british soaps but 
very late one night, it was probably about 1 a.m. in the morning, they showed one 1897 episode. Oh, wow. So I could... <laughs> So I got to see an episode in colour, uh, which was something. And bizarrely, they picked an episode that didn't have Barnabas in it. They were <laughs> billing it as, you know, dark shadow. I remember the the intro to it was um, how do you because the idents for it they were they were like uh, soap commercials. They were done like old retro soap commercials. They were really charming. And the uh-huh. the intro was how do you get rid of those stubborn vampire stains? Dark uh-huh. shadows certainly shows you how, uh, which was kind of funny. And then there was no vampire. And there wasn't even, Quentin was in it, but it wasn't even a werewolf episode. It's an episode uh, where Quentin's tormenting Laura. Okay. It's a good episode, but it had nothing to do (laughs) with anything that people would identify with Dark Shadows. God knows how they picked that one. Uh, But suddenly it was from sort of famine to feast and Dark Shadows was was just incredibly exciting. It was everywhere. It was so strange. (laughs) I was, I was so happy about it. <laughs> Did Dark Shadows develop a fandom in the UK? Because I know, you know, the Doc, Doctor Who fandom is pretty substantial. And the old Doctor Who episodes, I mean, you could say there are definitely parallels uh, in terms of, you know, being shot in video and, and just the quality. Some, I would say there was modest interest. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, this is... I mean, this is daytime. It's cable in a very yeah. small country. You were talking an audience in the low thousands. It was probably about 2,000 people watching it. I don't think sci-fi would have admitted that at the time, but those basically were the numbers. So it was very, very, very fringe. But there were people who came along for the ride and got uh, got sucked in. I think for a lot of people, it was kind of antiquated. And it's also a kind of import people in this country would not have been used to seeing if we imported series. Ironically, it was submitted to the BBC in the early 70s, and uh, it's lost time what they made of it, but they they didn't buy it, so that may give you some indication. But Mm -hmm. generally, other than sitcoms, things on videotape wouldn't be imported. It would have all been on film. So Dark Shadows was never really... It was a sort of anomaly. It didn't really look like regular TV, although we have a big tradition in broadcasting for soap operas, um, mm-hmm. uh, the evening television schedules here are dominated by them. They're really the, yeah. the sort of building blocks. Particularly also, they were showing 10 a, a week, which was a hell of a commitment. And then at one point they switched to three a day. So that was 15. And even even I found that was too much. Yeah. You just couldn't keep up with I mean, who has that kind of time? Um, very few people. Uh, but it did develop a fandom, and I started a fanzine, which was to, you know, marshal the troops. And we were going to have the, I don't know what we were going to do. We were going to charter a plane and go to the Dark Shadows Festival. Um, <laughs> spoiler, we didn't. But, um, you know, it was it was in the dozens. It was not in the hundreds. The Dark Shadows Journal? Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the early yeah. one, I think it was probably yeah. about 20 copies of. Was it, were you shipping um, the the zine? Was it inter, were you shipping? Oh, the vast majority of them went to the states. Absolutely, okay. Okay. they were yes. Uh, and I'd take them out when I went to the festivals. I'd take them. I, by the end, there were probably I think the last one probably sold about two hundred copies. It was fairly. It was still fairly fringe, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you consider, I mean, you consider the sort of commitment it requires to read about a magazine. And in those days, there were no, you know, there was no PayPal or things like that. So it was people putting dollar bills in envelopes and sending them sure, over yeah. the Atlantic with a wing and a prayer. I mean, I'm, I'm astonished anyone did it. <laughs> 
well, even with the the festival itself, it was like Sazy style. Even in the in the early aughts, I you know I went to a couple of the festivals. It was still you know sending a, a Sazy. I was like, wait a minute, we have we have other ways to do this. But um, I'm glad, yes, glad I got it. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, in terms of, you know, the, the BBC be, being, you know, pitched Dark Shadows in the early 70s. And a lot of stations here had, I think, had a difficult time. I think this is where Dark Shadows stumbled. And I talked about this in a, in a previous episode in terms of like maintain, because you see like, you know, Doctor Who and Star Trek and shows like this, that they continued to gain followers over the years. And Dark Shadows certainly has as well. But I think it was much more difficult for television stations to air Dark Shadows because of the well, I, think you, I think you have to look at it in the glass half full way, which yeah. is uh, there's a reason there's a reason soap operas do not have a long shelf life. It's kind of extraordinary the amount of effort it takes to make an episode of a soap, in essence, and it's done in a day. Mm-hmm. It's made yeah. for that day. Its work is done the minute it's been broadcast, and if it ever gets seen again, that's not really the normal way things go. So yeah. it was incredibly ambitious, I think, of ABC. ABC were trying to syndicate the show the minute it went off the air. There's sales yeah. literature in 71. It took them the best part four or five years to actually get enough sales to stand it up and make it happen. But just to attempt that is because as you say, it's such an unwieldy thing. It's not, you have to air it. It's not an easy sell. Yeah. Air it in order. Keep track of every day of every episode. We uh, luckily. Well, that's it. I mean, if you're showing, I don't know if you're, if you're a local station and you're showing Gilligan's Island and you show the wrong right. episode that day, you know, no one cares. Right. You know, they would love right. that show, probably don't care. Yeah. If you do it with a soap opera, the, the knock-on effect is just awful. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, everything from, you know, the logistical, the organizational side. So it, nothing about this was, was straightforward or easy. And the fact that not only it happened, but it continued to happen uh, and they expanded it and they got, all right, they didn't get the whole series out in syndication, but they got about two thirds of it, which is yeah. pretty extraordinary. Definitely. One of the local stations here uh, out in Cape Cod area, they were playing Dark Shadows and they ended up playing it all the way through to the end of the syndication package, which was partway into uh, 1970 parallel time. And then it ended. And I was like, oh no, well, what, what happens now? Uh, and it took a, a little while later for the MPI tapes to start coming out, thankfully. And mm-hmm. of course, Kathy's concordances and all of that helped to fill in the blanks. But um, I remember they sometimes they would play an episode out of order. I think it was in the, the Quentin's ghost storyline. And all of a sudden there's some an episode from partway into 1897. And I was like, what? What's going it, on here? Well, it happened on it happened on Sci-Fi UK and mm. they skipped they skipped the one where Barnabas arrives. Oh no. <laughs> all oh, the no. ones to skip. That one <laughs> that one didn't air. So Yikes. it was and then we tried about a year because um, I was sort of through the fanzine was trying to uh, make inroads with sci-fi. And they did put out an address at the end of the episodes, which is where most of the readers came from. Um, but we did do a, a sort of day long uh, marathon of Dark Shadows episodes. <laughs> I tried one of the ones we, uh, I, I put into it because they asked me to nominate what shows they want. I put in the missing Barnabas one. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> so it could be seen. And then they showed the wrong one again. No. Oh, <laughs> because presumably it? it had been logged incorrectly the first time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> but I'm not sure that one was ever seen here, which was oh, anyway, Yikes. best laid plans. 
Oh, no. It's difficult to get people. You know, I have friends who, you know, say, oh, you know, what, what, where should I start when I watch Dark Shadows? What do you what do you recommend to your friends who express an interest to you in checking it out? Oh, my, 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 my many friends asking me. <laughs> yeah, we never, I never stopped getting people asking me that. Uh, I, I, joking aside, I, I think of in terms of an entry point, which I actually think is a helpful entry point and which the show is in a this is the sort of tricky thing. I, I think, and this is true of actually trying to get on board with any soap, you, you almost need to acclimate. I, I think if you watch the first episode, well, it's never the first episode you see, but your, your first episode of soap out of context, they will have idiosyncrasies. They will have weird stuff that only that soap does, be it yep. if it's in performance or if it's in pacing or if it's mm-hmm. just, you know, weird tonal things that, once you've been watching for about two weeks, you just accept it. That's that's like, you know, it's like, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't realize you have a hairstyle. You, it's just, that's just how things look. That's just how people sound. That's just the way that world operates. But obviously coming to it, and particularly nowadays when you're not only coming to all of those things as a soap opera, you're coming to a soap opera that's 50 years out of date. Moreover, it's a, it, it, it's a piece of television that is otherwise extinct. We don't make TV shows that way anymore. We weren't making TV shows that way by the early 70s. And there was really good reason you weren't making it because it was stressful and very unsatisfactory and lots of things went wrong. But presenting that to someone blind, that's a (laughs) hell of a lot to take in. So the one I I used to recommend, and I I think it is the best, is... uh, the the beginning of 1897 same here yep it's got two (laughs) weeks which really are just a really good regular soap opera there's hardly any supernatural stuff you just it just sets out the world it sets out the characters and then you have the reading of edith's will which i think is the single best episode uh by far and you're off to the races and it just I just think it's a terrific. I just think that's, a, you know, Dark Shadows had started and that had been episode one. It still would have been every bit as successful. It's just a, it's just terrific. Everything about it works. Yeah. I have a, a friend who is a huge fan of all things spooky and horror. And he likes some of the early Barnabas stuff. He loves House of Dark Shadows. He's a fan of that. But he had a hard time continuing on he said he felt the pacing was too slow at times and the dramatic looks and and he had a tough time with it and i said the pause he said i think it was more this the pacing um which i, I admittedly can be an acquired taste for modern viewing but well the, I, the pacing is really interesting i think because it, it's simultaneously particularly once you get about two three years in yeah. Story narrative wise, it's too fast. Yet, yes, in terms of individual pacing in the episodes, it's the scenes are too long and slow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really, it's like a sort of yeah. strange kind of, um, it's like a kind of whiplash. These two yeah. things that really shouldn't be compatible. Yet, in the grammar of Dark Shadows, that's how you tell stories. And there's no sort of way, there's no shorthand for that. You just have to watch about three or four episodes until you you key into it. And that's yes. that's that's how Dark Shadows unfolds. And you kind of you kind of go with it. But totally, yeah. But yeah, you I, you know, it's always going to be a rough introduction for those reasons. I told him start with episode 700 and now he's getting sucked into it uh, with 1897. Right. So it's because <laughs> it's such a colorful, just fun, enjoyable storyline. The characters are so vivid. I mean, that was it. Dark. it well, it also really helps that it, it's consciously funny. 
There are funny moments. Witty, very witty. Yeah. Which the show had, I, I think the show dabbled in a bit, but mm. uh, Nicholas Blair, I think, is a real, and probably yeah. Professor Stokes, who are sure. both part of that sort of 68. That, that sort of wry sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. But those are kind of breakthrough characters in that they are without being completely tongue-in-cheek, they are kind of aware of the absurdity of being in a Dark Shadow story. And but the, I, I don't find them campy. Like, I don't think they're making fun of the subject matter, in other words. No, they're but not. I, I think there's a sort of gallows humor. But it, yes, yeah. In, it works, actually, in the, strangely, even though, you know, it's that phrase hanging a lantern on things, and generally, you know, the received wisdom, particularly if you're doing something kind of earnest, is you don't really want to say to the audience, do you see? And kind of wink at them, but actually, in the absurdity of Dark Shadows, it's sort of deadpan and funny to have someone who, particularly, the idea that Nicholas Blair, what a great sort of performance choice that Humber Alan Strader really made before they're writing Nicholas that way. That Nicholas is just really amused by being <laughs> Nicholas. Everything yeah. is entertaining to him oh, yes. until yep. until it all hits the fan. At which point, it's not. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, the Professor Stokes, I think, is an interesting sort of counterpoint to Barnabas and all the people at Collinwood who generally are bemoaning their lot and uh, <laughs> hanging their heads um, rather morosely. Professor Stokes loves being Professor Stokes. Oh, just, yeah, totally. I love his sort of first scene where he comes to the, the old house and he's turning up tables in <laughs> yes. Barnabas's house, seeing if they're antiques. Yes. Just, uh, you know, he, he, you the, the maker. stage to him. It's all a performance. Pity he was so, a drunk when he ma- he was drunk when he made it. <laughs> commenting on the on the yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. So that stuff's terrific. And when they go to 1897, they've got the confidence to. They really understand their sense of humor threshold. You've got Quentin, who's this terrific kind of Greek chorus, mm-hmm. who everything to him, even when it's dire is, you know, vaguely amusing, even if it's yeah. in, a, in a sort of, you know, it's pure, you know, very black gallows humour. Yeah. And then you've got the sort of absurdity of the gypsies who maybe not the most correct characters <laughs> right. through today's eyes, but they're very, they're a very entertaining sort of presence. Carl and, uh, Carl and Pansy. <laughs> Quite. So it's, it's much more, it's, it's much more consciously theatrical. It's much more, it's vivid. Uh, yeah, I, that's what I really like about it. I think there's yeah. a lot of, I think there's a tendency with Dark Shadows and certainly Dan Curtis, every time he tried to redo it, seemed to fall foul of this, to, to sort of make it very serious and kind of pompous and actually rather, <laughs> whereas I think if you were living, you were living that life. I mean, there's a kind of great, I wish I could remember what the episode is, but there's a kind of great bit with Barnabas, I think it's during, it's either at the height of 1897 or late of Ireland's where lots of things are going wrong. And he almost, I can't remember what the line is, but he almost goes, oh, what now? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. yeah. You just cannot. (laughs) Uh, I I love those kind of, uh, there's a great bit. I've been, sorry, I'm thinking about Leviathan's because I've been watching quite a few of those lately, but Mm -hmm. the, there's a great bit where him and Angelique are trying to sort of unravel loads of stuff. And in the middle of it, Angelique very plaintively says, but, but what if uh, what if Elizabeth recognizes me as the woman she wants? Oh, yes. <laughs> and he just it's not I'm sorry, it's not meant as a joke, but it's hilarious. He's just yeah, he's does this sort of sh- he almost does a shrug before he answers. her. no one's ever going to do that. You had dark hair back then in the, the sort of subtext. It's not meant that way, but it's very funny. <laughs> can you just can you just stop with this? I see. Yeah. I remember that episode and I kind of just 
did a double take. I was like, what? What, Really? Come on. And this is where, I mean, the Burton movie may have missed its own trick, really. But Mm -hmm. the line between soap opera, which is, is drama advanced through escalating chaos, the idea things, you know, you know, unrelated things bounce off each other in ways that are catastrophic. That's that's basically those are the building blocks of farce and dark shadows, particularly when you get to 1897 and you you plug these slightly wry, more arch characters into it. You're very close to farce. It's very, very entertaining. There's another line I love where Count Potofi walks into the Collinwood and Quentin says, my brother's mad. My nephew is possessed. Blah, blah. He list, lists off all these awful things. And then Potofi says, oh, stop worrying about your family. <laughs> but that, but that's, you know, that, that, that's a kind of sublime thing. And yeah. you know, you're probably getting that on as the world turns. Right, right. Uh, I mean, Potofi was such a fun character to watch. Anything Thayer David did was just Well, Potofi, I think, was just... The, the, the kind of extraordinary, and you were sort of talking about the literary side earlier, and I think you know Dark Shadows did it did it well, and sometimes did it atrociously. I think you know something like the Adam story is pretty crass. It's full of characters wandering around doing things that make no sense, other than well, we're we're doing Frankenstein this week, and this is what happens in Frankenstein, so I guess we're doing this, you know. And I, I like yeah, it, but it's it but, goes. But perversely, yeah. you've if you look at something like the Quentin story, where they they plug in Dorian Gray, yeah, and they extrapolate the bit that Oscar Wilde has no interest in, which is how what is this magical painting? How does it work? Why sure. does it work? Yeah, and they make it all about the the guy who can paint anything and make it a reality, and then they give him this supernatural mafiosa boss, yeah, who he's in the thrall of, and it's. Yeah. It's terrific. It's a really clever extrapolation of that situation. And it's it's brilliant. It sustains months of storyline. There's acres of storyline they get from that. Absolutely. Now, I want, I want to get back a little bit here. Yeah, to, I'm sorry. I have no idea how we got to that. Oh, no. Yeah. I, no, I, this is what it's all about. I love love talking about this okay. stuff. So right. I mean, <laughs> with someone who's as knowledgeable as you are as well. So um, it. Let's talk about the the Dark Shadows news page. Now, you did the Dark Shadows journal. I remember going to the Dark Shadows news page all the time. I think it was the first place where I saw a picture of the adult David Hennessy. Like, as an adult, I think he sent you a, a picture. I did, yes. That was really uh, cool. I was like, wow, so that's what he's up to. You know, so uh, how did that come about? Well, it, that was, in some ways, it was a bit of a sidestep from the fans. In originally, I got... Mm. I got online in 97, so in the year after the fanzine started, and the natural thing to do was to try and use this new thing called the internet. What is it? Will it last? Who knows? Uh, and to use that to promote the fanzine. And that was in the first instance. So I, I bought, bought a domain. I had darkshadows.co.uk, and it, there was a page that just sort of listed some things. And I think one of the things I realized quite quickly was you could just reach a lot more people um, compared to the fuss and the expense and, you know, the fancy always lost money. <laughs> it's just a mess. <laughs> Labor of love. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But compared to being able to just, uh, you know, you weren't at the mercy of post, you weren't at the mercy of having to staple things and make things. You could just put the information out there. That very quickly 
just became a much easier way of doing it. So that so there was darkshadows.co.uk for a couple of years, and then that became Collinwood.net, which was yeah. a much bigger, it was sort of an unfinished grand folly, really. It was an attempt to be the biggest, best Dark Shadows website. Um, it never really got close, but it, it, it did a lot of the things the, the the magazine had done. It did interviews. It did. It had a sort of episode guide with tiny, tiny little screen grabs, which were probably about 300 pixels, if that. So they were, I mean, nowadays you'd, you'd be craning in to see them because we're all used to seeing everything in HD, but that, that was a sort of breakthroughs we had to see a visual for each episode a little synopsis and then news and news was you know news was news was good currency if you were sort of trying to make a a new an online magazine a news strand made much more sense online and you know things were pretty vibrant then this is the late 90s which in terms of fan engagement is probably the highest it really ever was Mm -hmm. within You'd had about you know six seven years of sci-fi broadcasts. You'd had the ninety-one show. Uh, the cast were relatively young, and they were still you know on the TV scene a lot more than they are now. So it was there was all sorts of stuff going on, and that very quickly really became the focus. And then in the way that really all of these things kind of become outgrown, the website became unwieldy and not easy to update and of course it was all done in html so it was all kind of locked whereas nowadays it would be a database and a skin and you just if you want to change it you just change the uh you just change the template whereas then it was if you want to change it you you redo x hundred pages and the pages were in the hundreds i think there was probably about 500 pages of content at the height so yeah that that sort of became slowly obsolete and then that became a blog which was probably a about, I don't know when that was, probably about 2008, 2009. So even by then, it had been about 10 years. Uh, and then the uh, in a blog form, it lasted for probably another, I don't know, maybe another five, six, seven years, something like that. And by that point, we're in the social media age. And it's probably no secret, Dark Shadows News is, uh, we've not quite run out of it, but there's just less to report on. So social media and having it for occasional announcements was just much, much easier. And yeah. Yeah, ironically, it has the biggest audience it's ever had, even though the actual market, if you like, this stuff has kind of dwindled a little. Now, you did the Dark Shadows Journal, the Dark Shadows News page uh, as a fan, but then you wound up working on Dark Shadows professionally, which is super exciting. Uh, that must have that must have been really exciting through the big Finnish audios, which have been going, I believe, since 2006. And you were a producer on the big Finnish audios, a writer, uh, several of the, the ones I mentioned at the top of the show, for example. Uh, I love Kingdom of the Dead. That's that's one of my favorites. Uh, David Warner yeah. was in that. That was just really cool. And um, I love your audio stories because they were I, they just had a vibe to them that was spooky that I, I just I just love the vibe. And I remember writing, a, doing a big write up on them in, in the classic horror film board years ago that because I, I just really uh, enjoyed them. Are you still involved with that now at all? Or have you moved? On? No, I did it for about I did sort of six years and okay. it was it was a great thing to do. It was really I'd been. I'd been working for Big Finish as a cover artist. I was in covers for their Doctor Who stuff. And mm-hmm. and obviously being aware of Dark Shadows, I knew quite a lot of the cast. I knew Jim Pearson. I was going to the festivals. I was aware there was an audience. And it just seemed like a really obvious thing that 
Dark Shadows should be doing. And this would probably have been sort of 2002, 2003. And I think I mentioned this to Jim as, you know, there was a company doing this and not necessarily that Big Finish should do it, but that, you know, audio is a relatively cheap medium. Mm-hmm. It's a great way of doing extended fiction. It's a great way of, you know, if you have what is otherwise a kind of defunct franchise, it's a great way of giving it a present tense element. So you're not entirely retrospective, which in a marketplace is not a bad thing. And so, yeah, and then having sort of had that conversation about a year later as the sort of grand finale to the Dark Shadows festivals for absolutely the last Dark Shadows festival ever they did in 2003, (laughs) they did uh, uh, Return to Collinwood, which was very much a kind of the lines I thought this could work. And so... Uh, to cut a long story short, even though that that was successful and it was pretty well received, there just wasn't as an ongoing strand, MPI and the the other people, the other parties involved in that just couldn't really as a one off. I think it was quite difficult for them to do it because they're not an audio company, and so it, there, there was a kind of gap in the market. It had kind of been road tested. It had been proven that it worked, but there was, where's the next one? Well, there isn't a next one. So uh, myself and Darren Gross, who would talk about these kind of things over email, sort of fleshed out some ideas of how it could be done. And I put it to my bosses at Big Finish thinking they'd be sort of thanks, but no thanks, but they were kind of intrigued and it fitted into at the time Big Finish had a, a sort of low key ambition to do something in the States, but hadn't really settled on what that could be. So this gave them a really obvious solution. Uh, and this would have been kind of late 2005, I suppose. And from there, it, it happened quite quickly. Uh, there was a, I went out with them to a Doctor Who convention at the start of 2006. Um, we'd already done quite a lot of preliminary work, knowing that the, the 40th anniversary of Dark Shadows was going to be that summer. And we had a meeting with Jim Pearson. He seemed fairly, yeah, hey, let's do this. Let's. I remember he used the phrase, let's fast track this, which sounded very... <laughs> Very Hollywood. Sounded, yeah, it sounded very Hollywood. And I, in my head, he was wearing sunglasses at the time. Maybe he possibly wasn't. But uh, let's say it happened that way. Uh, we've got to apologise that. But, yeah, from there, it happened very quickly. And so that was February, and we were recording the first four in May. So mm-hmm. I remember it was... <laughs> It was very, very fast. It was really fun to hear the actors come back and play their roles again, too. I mean, that's that was a cool way to have, you know, Laura Parker and David Selby and John Carlin and all many of the actors from from. In fact, you had Robert Rodan come in as uh, Oswald Gravener, the Revenant. I remember that. Yeah, it was. Good, cool. Yes, he was. Uh, that was funny. You had- <laughs> he, Robert was very funny. I think he was uh, very thrilled to be playing this role. He had endless ideas. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, we're all we're all the star of our own show. Robert, yeah. I think Robert felt brave now. Had, well, I uh, wondered if you were going to bring him back as Adam. I was like, what? Well, well, it was uh, as with all of these things, they were always plans. There was yeah. always, uh, you know, a, an an infinity of. Sure. possibilities and places we could have yeah. gone and we tried to do as many of them as we yeah. could and while uh you know you did have jonathan frid in one which won a rondo award and you had barbara Steele in that too and john carlin that was super cool but um for for the most part 
there was a new Barnabas, uh, Andrew Collins. So wh- how did you recast well, really, Barnabas? I was, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. This is a really, it's a really interesting aspect of that, particularly that first series of them. That mm-hmm. I mean, I sort of look back and they feel very dated to me now. You know, they're, they're very 2006. Now, 2006 <laughs> doesn't sound that long ago, but I think had we done them a couple of years either way, a couple of years earlier, a couple of years later, I think the shape of those audios would have been quite different. I remember there was a lot of conversation about what was a big finished version of Dark Shadows, which sounds, you know, sounds a bit earnest and navel gazing, but there was a lot of a sense of how we can't really do a sort of, we can't do it like it's the 60s. We've got to do something that's that has a kind of modern sensibility or a not quite contemporary, but not consciously retro either. And we've also got to sort of make stake out our claim and say how this is distinct in an ongoing way that you can build stories from. And all of these things, now that's the sort of the very long conversations you have before you make something. Strangely, once you've actually made it, all that stuff falls away. You've made one. That's the show you're making and you make more of them. But Weirdly, because we did four as a block in that first year, that that dominated a lot of the thinking and a lot of the conversations. And in tandem with that, there'd been the the WB pilot, which was only a year or so before, and there was still little rumblings occasionally that that might be revived somehow. So we were thinking about Dark Shadows in a more a slightly more contemporary way than I think we would have otherwise, mm. and also. The one, the thing I think is really, really crucial. Uh, Madman hadn't happened yet. Okay, yeah. Madman arrived two years after, and I think completely changed the perception of the '60s. The '60s went from being dated and a bit weird-looking and rubbish to suddenly classic and stylish, and they've been that way ever since. I don't think we're ever really going to look at the '60s and roll our eyes again. But in sort of 2005, you would have, and we did. So I, I think. I think we'd have done something more faithful to the original series had we done it a couple of years later, strangely. I think the, and then the other thing that ties in with that is that Jonathan Fred was very much off the scene. Yeah. He'd not, was not only off the scene, he'd been off the scene a very long time. He hadn't attended a festival since 1993, I think. Mm-hmm. So that would have been uh, 12, 13 years at that point. It was just, you know, if you consider the, the history of the festivals at that point, you know, for about half of them, he hadn't been there. And he wasn't, he hadn't really done anything for a few years. And all the, the intel was, he's retired, this is it, he's done, you're not going to see him again. And we... And so I think that gave us license to recast Barnabas in a way that <laughs> the festival we launched at suddenly on the screen, there's Jonathan Frid. Oh, and, oh, wait a minute. He's going to phone in. Oh, oh, and now he's here. And then, and then the next year, you know, he was back and he was back every year until he wasn't with us anymore. So I think had Jonathan been more part of the landscape, we wouldn't have recast Barnabas or we wouldn't have done it. I think as an opening bid, mm-hmm. that was, I think our feeling was, well, Dark Shadows is generally known as the Barnabas Collins vampire show. We can't really do this. We need, you know, we need the vampire. Where is he? Uh, Well, and we did ask Jonathan. We asked him, I I think, more out of politeness than any real expectation he would do it. 
Yeah. But I always felt that if I was asked about it, I had to be able to say, yes, we did ask him. Yeah. We couldn't. And he sent us a, it was for an intermediary, but we were told he wished us well, but thanks, but no thanks. And one of the things we had asked was the idea, there were two ideas really. One was, I kind of knew there was never any way he was going to do this as a regular thing. That was just so off the cards. It was just never going to happen. Even once Jonathan was back in the fold, that was never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, He was, you know, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. He was a fickle personality and he, he had, he had ambivalence about dark shadows. He had ambivalence about that character and Mm -hmm. it was never going to be an easy conversation and wasn't. So we had asked, if he would be willing to do a, a, a recording for the first one and what that would have been. And there, there are some bits of it in the, the finished play, uh, the first one, The House of Despair, where it was going to be a sort of a, not quite a Doctor Who regeneration scene, but a kind of, in a fantasy context, a sort of thematic handover from the Barnabas of old to the Barnabas of new. Um, and if you, there is a bit of that scene still in there, if you kind of know where to look for it, you can probably spot it. But but yeah, so we decided quite early on that we needed a Barnabas and we thought that, and particularly, as, as I would say, a lot of our thinking was we had to create a sort of big Finnish specific version of Dark Shadows. And that was a good way of putting out, you know, putting a flag in the sand and saying, well, this is us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we ended up with Andrew Collins, who was gr- a great guy and very... Uh, I think very respectful of uh, the big pointy vampire shoes he had to fill and was very respectful of our cast. And I, I think brought equally as good a character to it. He was always, he was always a great presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's he's still with it as far far as I yeah know. no no I mean he's still there he's uh, <laughs> yeah are they are they I mean, in fact he's still there. I mean uh, joking aside and um, as much as I, I think that's probably the single most successful in terms of spin-off media which really it doesn't work the way in terms of legitimacy I don't like using the word canon because that was just makes me want to oh, roll I my eyes but I use it all the time <laughs> but the but there's a sort of perverse thing that I think with spin-off media, and it shouldn't really work this way. The more of it you do, strangely, the less legitimate it feels. So I think most people's headspace, they can take bolting on one or two stories that do a very specific thing, like they mm-hmm. finish a storyline or they give you an endpoint or something like that. But once you start slotting in, you're slotting in dozens. I think most people just kind of get, nah, I can't process it. It's that's just something else. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I think we did that did stick, because as you say, he's still there many, many years later. I think we did we did manage to pull off recasting Barnabas, which I think is the most difficult character to recast. And yeah, he does somehow we got away with it. Yeah, he does uh, he does an admirable job in playing Barnabas. So uh and uh he's it was a difficult fans like most fans like them, I think. Yeah. I think it was a very difficult proposition for him as well because we I remember we would there were a few, not very many, but one or two people who sort of said to me in a slightly, are you really sure about this guy? Which I thought was, you know, which I was. Um, I didn't cast Andrew because he was cast by Gary Russell, who was our director and did a lot of the production for the first year. But it was a very delicate proposition. We needed someone who 
sort of understood the cult landscape enough that you're not just playing a character, you're playing a character. People are invested in a character who's had a past and like it or not, you have to deliver something which is going to be compatible with that. You can't, it's not a question of just going off and doing your own thing and, you know, tough if the audience doesn't accept it, they've got to live with it. It wasn't going to work like that. And it needed to be someone who we could depend upon to invest in this and invest in us and continue to be available, which the bigger actor you cast, the less likely that is. And there was also, and this is where Andrew, I think, was incredibly good. There was a hierarchy I was conscious of. You couldn't have our sort of legacy actors and suddenly say, well, here's your new star. It needed to be someone who wasn't going to ruffle those feathers. And when you put all of those things, uh, you stack all those things up and, you, you know, that's your criteria, you realise it goes it goes down to being a very small list of possibilities for the kind of person you could cast. It was not something where we could really throw the net wide. It really had to be. And Andrew was very good and he was very... You know, he did his homework and he really, I think, came in with a, a perspective on Jonathan's performance and what he could deliver that would that could echo that and not, not graze against it. It was a very, um, I think he deserved a lot of kudos because he, I, I think, I don't think that was an easy job at all. Mm-hmm. Barnabas is a very difficult character to, I think, to capture. I mean, I think one of the missteps with the 91 series, as much as I, I did like Ben Cross, but he was too dashing almost. There's an, an eccentricity to Barnabas. Well, the thing about, there's a thing about Jonathan's casting, which mm-hmm. now I am of the school of thought that basically any vaguely competent actor could have played that role. And I think it would have hit big because... I think a vampire was a kind of universal word of mouth monster in a way that the things they'd been doing supernaturally up to that point weren't. I think that was in the landscape of daytime TV. I think that was so kind of wild and unexpected that it would have worked. And I mean, the fact that they couldn't, they don't ever say the word vampire until they get to 1795, ABC wouldn't let them. And no one has any confusion about what this what this monster is, what he is, what he does, how he operates. That that sort of tells you just how readily understandable this this sort of character and the situation was. So I think in that respect, Barnabas was a, a, a really strong proposition. I think that was always going to be the point at which Dark Shadows hit big. But the thing I think was kind of interesting was Jonathan, as you say, he wasn't really dashing. He was this. <laughs> you know, I can look at someone like David Selby and I think, yeah, if I was kind of cast to sort of someone to be the lead of a, t- a sort of dynamic lead in the TV show, Selby, you know, he has a kind of pin-up aspect and he's got a kind of interesting look. Jonathan, he had a sort of slight dorkiness about him. He sort of yeah. looked a bit like an accountant, which <laughs> he did, you know. I, yeah. I mean, well, he looked like a vampire. He would, he, uh, uh, Jonathan Fred said in that uh, one of his interviews, you know, I, when he went to audition, he said, I was sitting in this room with these cadaverous looking actors and it turns out I out cadavered them all. <laughs> You know, there was a bit of a cadaverous look, but yes, also a he, he, accountant. He had a, yeah, <laughs> he had a sort of slight. You know, he was middle aged. I mean, the idea yeah. that this, you know, I mean, I was. I mean, that's one of the things about the the show I find really weird. The whole phenomenon of it that you had all these teenage girls lusting after, you know. Yeah. He was on the cover of all these. This guy in his mid forties, and he was not a, you know, no disrespect to John. He was not a young-looking forty-something. He looked, you know, he looked, he looked his age, and yet 
I, I think that played against the character because it, it, ga- it did give him a sort of eccentricity. It gave him, even at his most marauding, he had a sort of quaintness about him, which was, that's a very difficult thing to capture. And Ben Cross finds his own way of doing it. And I think, uh, you know, if you... Without getting too highfalutin, if you you know if you look at the performance as an extension of the text, I think he is playing what is on the page and finding mm-hmm. his own way to do a very successful version of Barnabas. And it takes him a while to get there. Yeah, I think you can tell in the early episodes he's not at ease with the material, yeah. and yet by the end he and it's no, it's a completely different take to Jonathan Frizz, he's basically playing him like he's a sort of supernatural James Bond. Right. Which right. for Ben Cross works really well. Yes. Things like the the 91 uh, version of Bricking Up Reverend Trask is hilarious. <laughs> it, it's really funny. Yeah. And Ben Cross is great in that. Um, and it's a sort of way that actually Ben Cross, even though he's quite a, he was quite a, a sinister looking guy, he, he wasn't really scary. In a way that actually Jonathan, even though he was kind of a sinister looking guy, generally I don't think was very scary. But I think both of them, I think Ben found a way of playing it, which was sort of suave and a bit absurd and a bit, mm. actually a bit closer to sort of David Selby's take yeah. on a supernatural character. Sure. And then you've got Jonathan, who was, yes, a very, uh, <laughs> was just this kind of rather forlorn character. So even when it's all going, even when he's in control, he's sort of looks a bit sort of crumpled and sorry for himself. And I think that did make him very endearing. And it's, <laughs> it is a very difficult quality to capture, which I mean, perversely for all the things I think he maybe didn't get right, I think Johnny Depp captured that quality of Fred's performance. You know, even yeah. if it was having to channel it with the indignity of being projectile vomited in the face. Well, I don't, yeah. I think there, there were some aspects to his performance. I, I would agree with that, that where he did capture some of that, but I just, I, I just don't understand why they decided to go in that direction to, I, oh, I do. Just, I can absolutely see why it happened. I don't think it was a good decision, mm-hmm. but I, I can see why it was a really tough pitch. I mean, I'm, I like John August's work a lot. He was the original script writer on it and i'm sure you know maybe it's not very nice of me to say but you know he's head and shoulders a far better writer than seth graham smith has ever been at anything and you know sorry i know that's not that's not oh no other others have said the same but i I think you can actually look at their work side by side and say it is factually true but i can see why if you're sort of pitching it you know dark shadows was if you like first on the scene with this idea of blending horror stuff into a kind of an anthology series, particularly. But if you're someone who's paying a license for for the format, you have to ask, and you remove the soap opera aspect, well, what are you getting? Well, it's about it's about a sort of creepy old family and they've kind of got a vampire. Was that it? What, what's, the, what's, what, what's so unique about this Dark Shadows thing? And I can see why, for instance, I think that's why they went for the 70s setting. It gave it... Uh, specificity. It gave it a point of difference from other vampire things being done. Well, let's do a vampire who, a guy who's uh, behind the times in a world that's behind the times itself. And that I thought was a great thing. And that's something I could see, you know, depending on how, how and with, if and when Dark Shadows is revived again, I could see that sticking. I think that may be the way it's done from now on. I think that may be a very natural way, even if it's not literally the past. I think it being a yesteryear kind of world 
is going to be hardwired in. That's not in the 60s version at all, but I think that will be probably how it's done. You've then got, well, all right, that's something, but well, what else about it? So he's a, he's a vampire and he doesn't like being a vampire. Well, we've, seen, we've been seeing those for time immemorial, so what's different about it? And I can see why they went down a line of, well, let's make it funny then, let's make it kind of campy, but I don't necessarily think that was a terrible thing to do. I think the problem with it was, and this is where you know comedy is brutal, uh, if you're going to do a comedy, it needs to be hilarious and the problem and this is really a problem i lay at the 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 door of the writer uh there is no situation you cannot have you cannot have comedy without an escalating situation that creates comedy Mm -hmm. and it's an episodic story it's got less story and a less interconnected story than you would have done in a week of the soap opera everything is episodic and every time it gets close to characters might collide in an interesting way nothing happens no you have um uh, you have a sort of an amazing visual where angela they're having this big party and angelique turns up and the expectation is she's going to do something terrible she, it should be terrifying the stakes should never be higher and she lurks in a corner and that's it yeah and it's full of these kind of it's got so many strands that you could just lift out and you wouldn't miss them because they don't go anywhere. And that's the bit that frustrated me. You had sort of so much discussion, particularly from Tim Burton in the early stages of the filming, saying, well, we're trying to capture the vibe of a soap opera, and that's a really weird vibe. And it's all about the vibe and all of this stuff. Well, And I mean, yet you could be forgiven for thinking no one connected with it actually knew what a soap opera was, let alone watch one. It had no, a bit like I was saying earlier about farce and escalating drama being on a knife edge together it was so e- it would have been so easy to take the sort of melodrama and the if you like the uh, the the chaos of coincidence that soaps that's the kind of that's the kind of ecosystem for soap stories and to just make that into comedy and it could have been glorious it could have been it wouldn't have been for everyone but i think it could have been a really good film in its own right I mean, I think a lot of fans felt betrayed by Tim Burton and Johnny Depp because for years they were professing that they were fans of Dark Shadows, particularly Depp and Burton as well. Uh, I remember reading an article with him in a horror magazine where you know, that show pounded a nail into my brain. And uh, I guess well, it literally I, did, apparently. But and then I, they turned around I, and made a ridiculous. Well, no, I think I mean, I think with all of this stuff and I mean, I mm. As someone who was running running that news page at the time, the movie yeah. was a really not a good experience because <laughs> it was just day after day after day, this tidal wave of negativity. And this was right. before the thing had even hit. Yeah. And, you know, I hadn't made the thing. I had no stake in it. I had no skin in this game, but it was relentless. And the view, you know, from a point of perspective is the worst experience anyone had at the hands of that movie was it wasted two hours of their For time sure. it didn't you know it didn't betray their childhood it didn't destroy you know their formative experiences it was just a movie that wasn't great and every day of the week you can go out to a cinema and you can see one of those so i don't take it that way I, and i think people were very unrealistic about tim burton as a filmmaker he's mm. and also johnny depp to a degree johnny <laughs> depp has when he hits big he hits big um you know he hits massive but He's done an awful lot of flop films. He's done far more flop films than he's ever done successes. True, true. And Tim Burton is the guy who made a film about Mars attacks 
and only afterwards realized the Mars Attacks trading cards had a story. Oh, he didn't know that going into. He, 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 he you know, he's a filmmaker. He's all about very the much by imagery. Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's an artist. I mean, he's very so, yeah. I can see how the photography of Dark Shadows would absolutely um, sure. burrow into his brain and not not go out again. Uh, the story, I don't think he. I mean, do you really think he knows who Carolyn Stoddard is? Do you think he knows that she's not a Collins? Do you think? I mean, all those kind of. The things that I would say are the litmus test of actually being an engaged viewer and fan of this. There are gradations of fandom. Yeah. Uh, I think I think he loved it in his own way. I think it was a idiosyncratic and rather wrong-footed tribute, but it was a tribute nonetheless. Yeah, the visuals. And, uh, and, and ultimately, this is the thing I think you have to really, uh, you know, the absurdism of this whole thing. No one, absolutely no one was queuing up to make a Dark Shadows film in 2009. You know, when this thing was being, was on the blocks and being moved, no one wanted to make a Dark Shadows film. They made it because those two people did. So the idea that Warner Brothers, which is one of the biggest (laughs) studios in the world, not only made a Dark Shadows film, they made a needlessly expensive Dark Shadows film stacked with top flight talent across the board with no idea how they would market it at the other end. And that that is, that is literally what happened. Right. Based on this, you know, it's precious to us, but what is otherwise a forgotten soap, no one is making, no one's going to make a film version of the secret storm like that. No one's going to make a version of all my children like that. You have to. I would argue though that dark shadows falls more in line with genre television in terms of its continued uh, there. There's continued to some extent. I mean, we're not at the level of like, you know, a star Trek or certainly not a star Wars or something like that, but uh, there's a, a reason they keep coming back to things like vampires and werewolves and re visiting Dracula and Frankenstein and ghosts and things like that. There is an interest from fans of that type of pop culture, horror, fantasy, sci-fi pop culture in dark shadows. And that I think is what gives it a chance and and as opposed to something like as the world turns or, you know. Absolutely. But that doesn't bankroll $125 million movies. That's, you know, that's the thing I would say. And possibly uh, there is an argument. The, when the film was announced, it was, and it was in some way into filming, it was announced it was a $65 million movie. Now Mm. I think had they stuck to their guns and made a $65 million movie, it would have probably been seen by exactly the same number of people. It would have been, I don't believe it became twice as good a film for spending twice as much money. And I think on that metric, it would have been judged a reasonable success. Yeah, I think there were a lot of people who just seemed to, I remember, I won't, I won't name names, but I remember the one actor from the original show said to me, well, Warners, Warners think this is going to be their next Harry Potter. And I was almost having almost suppressed laughter because I was like, well, how? You know, how is that going to happen? Yeah. You've got, you know, Harry Potter is a worldwide brand that has sold hundreds of millions of books within the past 20 years and is still selling them. The, the, you know, these things are just completely, they are not in any way comparable. But I think there was this blind faith. Certainly there was this blind faith, I think, from Warner Brothers that if they had something with Johnny Depp doing a kind of cartoony performance in funny makeup, but between Pirates of the Caribbean and Alice in Wonderland, that would give you a hit movie. And I think there was a lot of that kind of blind faith. I think um, it's the absurdism of, 
I mean, movie making is, yeah. as a world is just farcical on, on many levels, but the idea you could make a film on that scale in such an idiosyncratic way and have no idea yeah. how you were actually going to sell it at the other end, I think, I think it's remarkable it did as well as it did. Uh, and it did bring fans to to the original show and to just the fandom in, in general, I would say. There are fans. Well, I think it, it came a point where, um, and we're probably nearing that point again, where I think Dark Shadows was tapering to a natural end point. I mean, I know that's not, I, I know we're, we're here and we're talking about, we're on a fan podcast, we've, I'm <laughs> talking about my fan, you know, my fan magazine I'm making. So that's mm. probably, that may sound a bit fatalistic, but everything, you know, everything does have its time span. Everything does have a lifespan and everything um, does fade away eventually. And I think the movie probably did extend it another decade or so. I know and- that's probably not something that detractors would agree with, but I don't think it was the worst thing in the world to happen. I don't, I'm personally, I, you know, I'm a Tim Burton fan. I'm a Dark Shadows fan. You know, I felt disappointed on two, on two fronts. Yeah. <laughs> but I loved you know. Tim Burton. I love his early films up until Planet of the Apes, honestly, like all, and even a few, maybe a couple after that, but like, I know I loved Sleepy Hollow, you know, I loved the first uh, two Batman movies. I loved Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood. I think Ed Wood's a, Ed Wood's a Ed terrific film. I think oh. there are lots of, I don't say, I think it fell wide of the mark, yeah. but it wasn't, I don't think it, particularly, I mean, I still find, you know, I could prove it now. I could go and post a picture on the news page of, Johnny Depp and Tim Burton. <laughs> You're going to get and, a lot of... You know, yeah. go, go back 10, you know, go and make a cup of tea, come back 10 minutes later and read the comments. And yes, all the profanity and, of this. <laughs> you know, exactly. And, you know, the idea that we're, we're still... Grind, there are people still grinding their teeth about this 10 years later. Right. Just, I don't know. I, it, yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen someone like Guillermo del Toro take a shot at it. But now I'm excited to see. I had Mark B. Perry on a couple episodes back and he's uh, shopping around Dark Shadows reincarnation. And I'm I'm really excited to see how that goes. And I, I wish him luck with that. I hope he does I'm, get that off the ground. Yeah, I'd say I'm cautiously I mean, I'm impressed by his pitch. <laughs> I, I mean, who knows? I, I I think it's a very tall order to revive Dark Shadows in any successful medium. And, you know, someone who tried to do it in a very fringe way on audio, I guess to bring it back to what we were talking about. I I think the there are immense challenges about it because, as, as I was saying earlier, I don't think it's a, a compelling, straightforward format. It's not like... Doctor Who or Star Trek, where really what you have is is a framework you can plug any story into that really gives you the shape of, you know, whatever story you plug into it, it provides a shape. With Dark Shadows, it's a much more abstract kind of show. And that's that's the nature of soap. Soaps really every few years become a new show. It just happens to be you've watched it become that new show in very, you know, very slow time lapse so you're not aware of it. That does make it a very difficult thing to grasp by the neck and say, well, this is what Dark Shadows is and this is how we tell a story with it and this is what it's about. And those things, you know, there are a million ways you can revive it. If you were going to, if you're doing a revival of the X-Files, it really comes down to, well, can you get those two actors? If you can get those two actors, then you have a show. Mm -hmm. It comes, you know, with Star Trek, you will decide on what what the starship is and what the captain is what their character is, that will be the shape of your show to a large degree. With Doctor Who, you cast that actor in that role in, I suppose, in contrast to whoever 
they are replacing, and that will give you the parameters we show with Dark Shadows. You could revive Dark Shadows and keep every single character from the, the original show. You could keep none of them. It could still be Dark Shadows. It's a very, very difficult abstract thing to, I think, find a take on. I think Mark's, uh, I, I listened to your, uh, your, your conversation with him. I, I think what Mark's proposing sounds sounds very sensible and very viable. And, you know, he's got a great track record, so I I, I don't think he'd do a boring version of Dark Shadows. You know, as you say, much like you, I wish him, I wish him luck. I hope he can do it. Yeah, I have faith in his ability to pull it off, and I, I look forward to seeing what, what he's going to do with that. Now, uh, just quickly getting back to the audio dramas, and then I want to ask you mm. some, some geek questions before we wrap it up. Sure. Although our, we could argue that the whole episode has been good to well, geek yeah, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, please. This is what it's all about, Stuart. Uh, okay. uh, celebrating this stuff, having fun. Um, so what is, uh, what's your favorite audio drama that you, that you worked on? Good question. I, mean, I could give the politicians answer and say, well, I'm fond of them all, but that's, that's very interesting. I, I think probably, I think Kingdom of the Dead is probably, which isn't, isn't real. I mean, it's four stories, so that's a bit of a cheat, but that was that was really the, the sort of distillation of what I was trying to do with Dark Shadows on audio. Mm-hmm. I think the first year, the first year is kind of weird because as I said earlier, we did them in a block of four and I think there were certain anxieties about particularly the format and how we were going to approach it, which if we'd have done the first one in isolation, we'd have worked those all out in week one. But instead we sort of had, they're not quite teething troubles. It's something a little more low level, a little more subliminal than that, but they are, they're, they're a sort of, there's a sort of level of hubbub in those early ones that isn't something tonally that I think is just, we haven't quite worked it out yet. Or moreover, we we had worked it out by the end of the first one. It just happened to be everything else was locked in for the next three. That's a better way. Does that make? I hope I'm explaining it okay. But so then we had this sort of situation where uh, trying to go into a second series, and what happened in the meantime was Gary Russell, who was the director, and did an awful lot of the production on the first year. Even though I was credited as producer, Gary. Gary was doing a lot of the nuts and bolts in terms of how you put it together, particularly how you budgeted it and things like that. And Gary had left. And so it was sort of handed over to me and it was like, okay, well, how do you, how do you produce an audio series? How do you do this? And the thing I was very conscious of was that we hadn't, I sound like a broken record here, but it all comes back to the soap opera for me. And I didn't feel we'd nailed the soap opera. We'd, we'd sort of used a, the Doctor Who audio format, which is a self-contained story, really built around a, a sort of guest star. Um, but the difference we had with Dark Shadows and the challenge with Dark Shadows was it needed to be a cast of a certain size and they needed to be characters from the show. So, you know, I'm not saying it all comes down to money, but that was a budget challenge because really to do those stories and really give them a sense of the space they needed, they really needed to have four or five people from the show in ideally. I felt they needed that to have a community of characters. And that was tricky because, you know, four or five name actors cost money and they, that, that ate up a lot of the budget. And it meant the first year, really, we were restricted to our regulars mm-hmm. and one other actor. And that's, we, we massaged it. There were a couple of little tricks that were done to sort of double up people and make that work. But that was, 
that was the, the the financial structure. And of course, although we found some ways to disguise it, what that means is, in practical terms, and again, that's what I mean about teething troubles, it became apparent the further you got into the, the series that you end up with you have your regulars and you have more or less one significant, one new character arrives who can only be the villain. So there is, it's not quite sameness because we did find ways to try and tell the story slightly differently, but it was a format. It was kind of a, a rigid format and not in a very helpful way, particularly going forward. It was really not going to be, you could get away with that for a, few, a handful of stories. You could not get away for, with that for a second year. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I did was to really rework the entire production because if you you could almost do it, it was almost algebraic. You could work out, well, we've got this, we can afford this many Dark Shadows actors across the series for this many days. Whereas what we did the previous year was, some people did four days, some people did three. We shuffled the deck so everyone did fewer days, but we got more actors in, which then meant it really had to be one story. Mm-hmm. So it all kind of, it all, all this stuff kind of coalesced. It took a while to arrive at how we do it. But if it was going to be one story, that meant it could be more, it could be a serial, it could be more soapy. It meant that having one villain wasn't an obstacle because the villain's there for an hour. You sort of need 20 minutes to establish them. You have 20 minutes for them to become. Uh, to set out their stall and get to a sort of crisis point. And then you have 20 minutes where you have to kind of get rid of them. And that doesn't give you a lot of elbow room for story. What you end up doing is they kind of become a rather superficial nuisance. Again, I think we found ways to disguise this or certainly downplay it, but those were very real restrictions. So, So what we did was we kind of had one big villain, which was, which I sort of thought we could get someone really good to play and we could have them hang around for a while and be a nuisance and really strut their stuff. And I thought that would just be great. And so we had, um, we got David Warner to play that, who I thought yeah. was just was knockout. Great. He was just great. And yeah. he, he was perfect. And he was great because he, in a very gentle way, I think he really fought for the humanity of that character, which I, I, I don't want to make him sound pompous because actually the, literally the first thing he said to me on the recording day is, oh, darling, uh, if you want to give me a reading, just go ahead and do it. <laughs> opening bid. Just obviously the, the, the etiquette with actors is the one thing you never do. Mm-hmm. But the, he, 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 he understood he was playing a villain, but he wanted his villain to have some dignity. And there were little things like, uh, he was very taken with the idea that Seraph is this sort of fallen angel character he was playing in an imperfect world, hones in on Maggie as the one perfect virtuous thing, and that ruins everything because he's it compromises all his plans, which was um and he really, you know, made that quite poetic and touching, I think. And that he found some delicacy, you know, he played he found some delicacy in what was probably in the nature of a dark shadow story, quite an indelicate character. But that was one thing. And then we could. Um, it meant we could also get in because we could have a bigger cast. We got Jerry Lacey in. We then got we got Jim Storm in for a bit, who I think you know many years off the event. I wish we'd made more of him because he I, lo- I really like that character. I liked his. I thought it was really funny putting in a kind of very blue collar sheriff <laughs> into this dark shadows world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'd have. I'd, I'd have probably if I'd have. When we were thinking, I got to the point where I was thinking about ideas for a third series and he was going to be a big part of that. He was going to come back. Oh, it was a very Dan Curtis thing. Well, I've had a character I like and we wrote, had, you know, inconveniently wrote him out. So we'll just bring him back. 
there was that. But um, and we got Lizette Anthony in, and we had her sort of playing our sort of second division villain. Out, she was on the road in Wincliffe, and she was great fun. And we were able to introduce uh, Alec Newman yes, as a recast yeah. David Collins, which I thought was He's one great. of the best. I've, yeah. Well, he was one of the best things in it, and he was, and he, he had this sort of advantage that it doesn't really matter for audio, but he did. He looks enough like David Hennessy that right, yeah. I they, could see if you were casting an adult David Collins, he'd be a pretty good. Yeah. I know he's a little too young, but he he had the right silhouette for sure. And that was, I should say, uh, Kingdom of the Dead was was written by me and Eric Wallace, who is now a showrunner on The Flash and. Oh, okay. Wow. He's yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it's really bad. His career's taken this downturn. (laughs) (laughs) I bet he wishes he could get back to doing Dark Shadows. Tell him to put a Dark Shadows reference in the flash. Turn it around. But but yeah, Eric. uh, Eric was terrific, and he. And I remember specifically, David was his idea. That was, and it was a great one. There's one scene in particular that I I haven't listened to it in a while, but I remember one scene that just kind of. Gave me goosebumps. Uh, I think everyone is experiencing their greatest fear or something to that effect. And the phone rings, uh, David answers, and it's Quentin's music. And Quentin realizes it's me. He's still afraid. Like that, he's yeah. that that fear is still there. I love that. That that's, gives chills. That, I love that. That's an Eric scene. That's okay. one of his, and it's a good one. It was uh, that I really liked. I really originally it wasn't going to be David, it was going to be Carolyn. Mm-hmm. And the story was going to be Carolyn and what became the Lizette Anthony character okay. were kind of running Wincliffe between them. And it was going to be that Carolyn was the boss. And that was an idea that I had this idea of something, something I liked about Nancy Barrett as this rather this is a rather delicate bird-like little yeah. woman. Yeah. And I liked the idea of making her a really sort of powerful businesswoman sort of I thought that was just an intro. I thought that's where, you know, Dark Show has gone on to the 80s. I think that's what they would have done with Carolyn. Um, Agreed. Yep. The sort of power suits, you know. She would have taken all the, the shoulder pads. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And when we were talking about ideas for a third series, that was one of them. That it was be it would be Carolyn. I remember it was a sort of scene where it'd be, you know, the there's, there's much hubbub in the town that the cannery's reopening and it was going to be this sports car sort of screeches up and <laughs> it, 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 Ed Griffin, who's the, the the pub landlord, sort of yells out, you can't park there. And the, and the opening line would have been us not knowing who this person is. I'm Carolyn Stoddard. I can park where the hell I like. Oh, great. <laughs> it was gonna be, that yeah. was going to be our sort of new yeah. Carolyn. But yeah, so we had this idea and then it sort of turned out we couldn't, again, because so much of this was down to scheduling, Although we got Nancy in for a little bit at the end off the back of something else, we couldn't get enough Carolyn material to justify doing a separate recording in New York, which was where Nancy was. So we were sort of in a bit of a, and Eric just had this great, well, what if it's, it could be, you know, what if it's David instead, which was actually a much more interesting idea. And it gave us, as you say, there was that interesting relationship with Quentin, which I thought that really worked for me because Again, it was kind of soapy. I always felt that if we, our Dark Shadows sort of fantasy stories needed to have a sort of soap equivalent. If you couldn't really look at it through that prism, it probably wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And the thing I liked about it was you had this, it's very sort of 80s dynasty. You've got the younger person who is heir to the estate, that's David. And you've got Quentin, who's the actual adult, and his insensibility and maturity is the adult. And But isn't, in theory... 
whoever is in charge is the one who can throw their weight the most. And there's that sort of interesting generation gap kind of interplay. And I like that, that we were getting, we kind of then had yeah. a couple of generations of colonizers. And I, I think we could have expanded that more going forward. Um, I know you're, you're, you're not involved in the big Finnish audios these days, but do you know if they're planning to continue those? I've gotten fans asking about that and I, I'm not sure of what the. I don't know. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I'm ex- I'm astonished. I'm staggered that, you know, here we are all these years later. They, they, they've lasted this long. I think yeah. it's, I always thought Dark Shadows on audio has been a very finite thing. I thought we'd do it for three or four years and then it would wrap up quite organically. So the idea it's gone on and on and on. It's, 16 years now, I think. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. I think that's really, it's not what I would have expected. Um, yeah. But, you know. That's the yeah. power of an idea, I suppose. <laughs> well, we're we're running low on time, so I want to yeah, I want to wrap. I, we... Oh no, we have a fascinating discussion, but I want to wrap up with a few, uh, just fun, quick, uh, off the cuff questions here. Um, favorite storyline and character from Dark Shadows? Oh, um, I would say in terms. Well, that's difficult. I I think in terms of sustained runs of episodes, it's probably eighteen ninety seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I am. I'm very fond of 70 parallel time, which yeah. I think is a really interesting window into what Dark Shadows should have been had it gone on longer. I think it's an unfortunate, it's actually a really good revamp, but it's in this parallel strand that you've then got to pack up where I think it's doing lots of things that are really interesting. I really, I think putting Willie and Carolyn together and having oh. Willie go up a couple of notches in the world, maybe not to the full sort of, Sort of doing who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but um, <laughs> um, but they, I think that's something that would have been great going forward. I loved, um, I sort of love that Collinwood is a bit more, for want of a better word, suburban. It's got a younger, slightly younger, twenty-something cast. It's much more rich people. Rich people causing problems for themselves. Even though the colors are different, the, the way the set is decorated. It looks, I, l- I really like orangey it. Orangey really, kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's got a whole different sort of mood in the house. And I kind of yeah. like that. And that's, to be honest, what you would, uh, that's how you revamp soaps. Generally, mm-hmm. uh, the one thing Dark Shadows never did, uh, well, it didn't do it. It's not like it generally didn't do it. It did, literally didn't do it. Um, if I was... Dan Curtis, and in 1971, I'd have wanted to find a way to, you know, rejuvenate Dark Shadows. I would have moved the Collinses out of that house. I would have had them lose their money. They, the ones we're left with, have to either go and live in the town and get proper jobs, which they hate. Uh, Roger working at Roger, yeah, Roger, Roger, you know, have Roger, have Roger be poor, and let's see how he gets on with that. Oh, that works, yeah. Uh, have them move into the old house, which obviously is not how Barnabas would probably do. <laughs> I can imagine Barnabas being an easy person to cohabit with. But I'd have moved a new family in and I'd have had them, I'd have almost done the, I think it would have been fun to have had, you've got a, a new bunch of sort of city people who you think are these rubes who are going to fall foul of the supernatural. And actually it turns out, they're either on the run from something supernatural or they're, you know, they've come, you know, they've, they're on the run from something even worse that's going to follow them. I'd have mm-hmm. just done something like that. And that would have been terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, seven, 1970 parallel time. I like a great yeah. deal. I really love, I like the little bottle stories, I think more than the the actual long flashbacks. I love the, uh, the 1995. Oh yeah. yeah. Two weeks or whatever it is. Um mm-hmm. 
Uh, I really like the little mini return to 1795. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of think, particularly by that third and fourth year, in a sort of post-1897 way, I, I think I'd have preferred Dark Shadows to do its flashbacks like that. They should have been little event weeks that you just pop somewhere. Right somewhere different for a bit, but without the sort of, without sort of dragging the momentum of the regular strand of the show down with, we're just going to put that on pause for four months, five months. But so yeah, those are mine. And sorry, you said character as well, didn't you? Yeah. Um, That's a good question. I, in terms of, I find Angelique fascinating. I love that she is this, uh, this character really makes no sense. <laughs> I love that she's that they make a virtue out of her inconsistency. That it seems to be the only logical reading is there are several Angeliques. They are <laughs> sometimes they are sometimes living in the same time. <laughs> you know, split by geography. We know in even though it wasn't, I think, consciously constructed that way. But all the dialogue suggests that while there is an Angelique pretending to be Cassandra studying at a university with Professor Stokes. There is another one in New York who has a modeling career and is going to marry Sky Rumson. And they are living a few hundred miles, you know, they're living <laughs> some hundreds of miles apart, but they are, they have completely different and separate needs and wants. They are, they have completely different um, motivations and they're quite merrily living their own lives doing their own thing. And so that, I find that character just fascinating just on a, as a piece of construction. That's amazing. I love um, probably from the others, probably Julia, cause she's, she's a character that shouldn't work. Uh, she doesn't in a lot of ways. It, it, it's a sort of strange in the morality of dark shadows, even in the morality of dark shadows, I don't think it makes sense or it should be acceptable that she murders Dave Wood. She's completely complicit with that. She's, it's unforgivable. Mm. It's the betrayal of her only friend on the show. Sure. Which is extraordinary. It's not, Barnabas is not her friend. Um, it's such a, that's a really strange, strange character thing. Yet I mean, Barnabas somehow, forces her into it though. I mean, the way he describes Woodard's death, if she doesn't help him, he's going to torture him to death, basically. It's such a horrendous alternative that she's, what else can she do, you know? Well, Which yes, doesn't excuse what she did. It doesn't, doesn't excuse it. And there no. should be, it's amazing, uh, but to sort of take that further, there should be no comeback from that. It no, should be irredeemable. No. Yet somehow, I don't know really quite how they did it. I, I, I you know, maybe as because a, Peter Turgeon replaced Robert Garinger. That I mean, maybe. Because- Do you know what? Maybe that did make it a little more acceptable than it otherwise would have been. But when you consider that the Peter Turgeon thing, that's interesting. That's maybe a good theory for it. But but when you consider when we come back to 1968, uh, it's not five months later for for those characters. It's literally mere weeks yeah and julia is she's got herself a new hairstyle she's a kind of woman about town she seems to be none too troubled by any of this and that should be kind of unacceptable but somehow you you kind of love that character because she's she's so driven and she's so smart Mm. uh i think i think intelligent characters tend to be attractive ones uh but I, I find that character just fascinating that she's she's kind of watchable and likable, even though 
many of her actions are very, very dubious. Another question, uh, the Leviathan creature, what do, you, what do you think it looked like? Do you think it looked like, you know, the Dunwich Horror, something Lovecraftian? Was it something uh, serpentine um, or was it something, some I hybrid? I don't know. I've never really <laughs> thought about that. I mean, I, I guess I would think about what would it be if it was, I mean, if it was a Dark Shadows it, in my head, it would have to be something you could do in a 60s studio. So it wouldn't be like a sort of rubber octopus or something like that. It would be, it would probably be like a, I think it'd probably be like a man in a business suit with a kind of squid on his face. <laughs> it would be something like that, I think. Something, something. With a, with a, with a breathing problem. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be something like that. Okay. okay. Um, uh, Nicholas Blair, yeah. warlock or demon? Ooh. Um, I don't know. I never really. I was. I, I never really think. The thing about Nicholas Blair as a warlock, he's not a very good warlock. <laughs> he's, you know, Nicholas. Nicholas is sort of. Um, I love that character, and I love that. As I said, I love that Humber Alistair is such such an entertaining presence, and he always seems to be having fun. Mm-hmm. You know, when you can see other actors visibly stressed. I, I don't believe I don't believe that guy really had a bad day on Dark Shadows. He always just seems to be loving it. Um, what, what would Nicholas Blair be? He's probably he's a demon. A demon? You don't think he, he was ever? Sense. He was never human. You don't think? Oh no, absolutely no? not. Okay, not, okay, not a chance. Okay, and uh, favorite Louis Edmonds character? Oh, it's got to be Roger. Roger's- Roger. I mean, Roger, the thing about Roger is he's such a, I mean, he's an awful character. He's a terrible father. He's a borderline <laughs> alcoholic. Uh, you know, he's lazy. He's entitled. And yet the only thing he can do, you know, he has no, he has no happiness. The only happiness he has is the irony of knowing himself. That's the only thing that seems to give him amusement, that he kind of realizes <laughs> he's in this terrible, he's in this awful household. And, you know, he can't, you know, he's got this, housekeeper who makes terrible meals and <laughs> Mrs. Johnson's uh, boiled dinners. Yeah. Quite. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of like in that sort of Greek chorus way, I kind of like having a character like that. And yeah. Roger was, you know, oh, his, and Roger's, his, his, I know Roger's always weak as well, which, you know, weak characters with a sense of humor. Yeah. Like, he had that oh, acerbic could, wit that was just so much fun to, to watch. Yeah, one of the things I felt with Roger, and I wish they could have developed it more. Um, I wish they'd kept Jeb after the Leviathan story. I think that mm-hmm. would have been just terrific to have had Roger, the apple of his eye, Carolyn, being yeah. you know married <laughs> to an insufferable a very, pig, a very raunchy <laughs> sex life with this cheap, insufferable pig. Is yes, he's <laughs> yeah. living. Uh, you know, has d- d- declared himself master of the manor and probably have his feet up on the coffee table. I think that would have been just, <laughs> that would have been terrific. Definitely, definitely. All right, Stuart. Well, please tell us one more time how we can get daytime gothic and how to keep up with information about daytime gothic. Uh, yes, if you go to uh, Dark Shadows News, as one word, on Facebook or Twitter, you can uh, you can see it as a pinned tweet or a pinned message, and there's, there's a mailing list you can sign up for. And if, if you're an artist or uh, you're a writer and you've got some burning creativity you'd like to pour into Dark Shadows, please uh, please get in touch. It's for a good cause, and um, it hopefully will be something very special. 
And when will pre-orders be going up? Uh, my plan is at the moment to get it out in early April. So it will probably be announced a couple of weeks before. It'll be pretty close to being available. It'll be sort of at the point it's ready to go to print. And okay. it'll be, I don't know quite what the pricing will be yet, but it'll be a web, we've got a web store. So you'll be able to sign up with your Dark Shows, Barnabucks and yeah, <laughs> order. Nice. Well, I will definitely, uh, in uh, subsequent episodes, I will definitely... Uh, make updates here as well uh, as things go along. Uh, we be happy to pass the info along. Uh, folks, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to my guests today, Stuart Manning. Uh, I really am excited for Daytime Gothic. If you are interested in the Big Finish audios, if you haven't listened to them, uh, I've, I definitely recommend uh, jump right into Kingdom of the Dead. It's fantastic. It's an excellent uh, box set. Always uh, keep your eye on the Dark Shadows news page on Facebook or Twitter for more information. And last thing, if you enjoy this 100% free podcast, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. If you would subscribe to the podcast, regardless of where you listen to it, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, YouTube, wherever it is, subscribe to the podcast. That's the first thing. Second thing, please rate the podcast. Sometimes you get these little star ratings. However you listen to the podcast, if there's a rating option, please give us a rating. And if you have time, I would really appreciate it if you would review the podcast. And I'll tell you why. Rating and reviewing the podcast is the number one way to get it to reach more fans. Because when fans look up information on Dark Shadows or podcasts about Dark Shadows, Terror at Collinwood will come up in the searches more often if there are ratings and reviews. That's how it works with these uh, feeds for the podcast. So wherever you subscribe to your audio feed or YouTube, wherever it is, if you're listening on YouTube, give us a like. If you're listening on one of the audio feeds, give us a rating and a review. That will help the podcast to grow and to reach more Dark Shadows fans. This is about celebrating Dark Shadows, showing people that Dark Shadows is here to stay, that it's an important part of pop culture, that it's an important part of gothic horror history. It's an important part of monster culture. So please subscribe, rate, and review. And thank you for listening. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly dissipated, for there will always be terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.